Hello and welcome to H2 Know, a student-run science podcast in the University of Florida's Streaming Science series. My name is Emily and I'm a PhD student of ecology here at the University of Florida. Here at H2 Know, we are super interested in the water all around us here in Florida. So we are here to connect you with rad scientists who are studying all things water, from our springs to our urban water management to our oceans. This week, we get to hear from Dr. Ashley Smith, who studies one of my favorite things of all time, oysters. So I'm Ashley Smith. I'm an assistant professor in the Soil and Water Sciences Department at the University of Florida's Tropical Research and Education Center in Homestead. Uh, my specialty is biogeochemistry, which is awesome because it's all three sciences in one. So I study how microbes in the sediment affect the availability of nutrients. Uh, the bio is the microbes, the geo is the sediments, and then the chemistry is the nutrients. Uh, so I'm looking at how nutrients like carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus move between soils, water, and air, and then how human activities are affecting this. And so what do you think is important about understanding biogeochemistry? Why look at all three of those aspects together instead of just biology or geology or chemistry alone? It's hard to separate them in reality. They're so interconnected. Uh, the way that we modify resources and change conditions then leads has cascading effects on the environment. So if you're looking at things in isolation, you can really get at some of the underlying mechanisms, but you have to think of it as an interconnected system to uh, put things in a broader perspective and understand how slight modifications can have cascading effects. That makes a lot of sense. Um, how did you become interested in this field? What made you want to become a biogeochemist? Well, it was a little bit by accident. Uh, I was an anthropology major in college and realized that I missed math. I was kind of tired of taking classes like, emotions in society or the culture of curing yeah. and I just I ended up trying to get an internship to really see if natural sciences was something that I wanted to do and the internship I had was in biogeochemistry which to me at the time was like this is awesome it's everything I'm definitely going to learn if this is a field that I should be in in mm -hmm. uh, the first few the first part of that internship it was more of a, what have I really gotten myself into? We're all like dirty and muddy and, and I didn't quite understand. But then after my first field experience, I realized that this is what I need to be doing. I, I love being covered in mud Good. and <laughs> just love it. Uh, and I also am just continuously amazed at this whole world that lives in the sediments and soils that we can't see, but does so much for us. Can uh, I ask why you were all muddy? Uh, for my, my internship project, we were looking at the effects of saltwater intrusion on marsh biogeochemistry, so mostly carbon cycling and greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, my project involved taking sediment samples. They're like cores that are about the size of a Coke can, and you would put your hands into this marsh and you would pull out the sample. And the marsh feels like uncooked brownies, but smells like rotten eggs. Uh, and it just, it was that sense that I was like, this is so awesome. 
Like I'm going to take the sample back and try to torture it, to get it to do, to respond to ways that, uh, that I think the environment might change in the future. So that was my first like experience taking sediment samples, sediment cores, and doing a whole biogeochemical experiment. And so then how did you get from there studying the, the soil cores from that marsh um, to what you're working on now? So my work now uh, is focused mostly on how our actions are impacting the, uh, these cycles, the availability of nutrients. That takes like twofold. There's the climate change aspect to my work. So I'm still looking at saltwater intrusion and sea level rise and how that can affect marsh biogeochemistry. But I'm also looking at how restoration, so the positive benefits that we're trying to do to the environment and, and their biogeochemical consequences. So, for example, I work a lot with oysters and oyster reef restoration, trying to maximize the benefits that oysters provide us in terms of their nutrient removal and ability. Uh, and this directly builds off of the work that I did as an undergrad and then into my PhD, focused on the benefits that natural environments give us in terms of their ability to process and remove nutrients. So why is it exactly, before we get back to the oysters, because I have a couple of questions about oysters um, that I think I'd really like to hear you answer, but why is it um, that removing nutrients is so important? Yeah, so... Nutrients are a pollutant. I know it's hard to think of nutrients as a pollutant because they're fundamental for life. Like we need carbon, we need nitrogen, we need phosphorus. They're the basis for our cells. Uh, but when you have too many nutrients, the system crashes. And I think of it sort of like coffee, especially in coastal and aquatic systems, where I need coffee to start my day. It's essential for my life, trust me. Mm -hmm. But if I have too much coffee, I end up talking super, super fast the whole time. And I'm running about a mile a minute, and then I can't sleep that night. <laughs> so it really messes up my system and then takes me a little bit to recover. Mm -hmm. So that's how nutrients are for our coastal and aquatic systems. It's the basis for life. But when they get too much of it, they feeds these al the algal blooms, and we get the that's when we turn the water that like guacamole colored green or tomato soup colored red, and then that can lead to uh, hypoxia in areas of low oxygen and fish kills. So we have to find the balance between having the right amount of nutrients that enter to keep things working, keep the system in check, without having it tip into this eutrophic algal dominated system. So where do oysters fit into that? Uh, so oysters are filter feeding bivalves. So they graze on the algae and that will help clean the water. But they also repackage that algae. Nitrogen is the main pollutant uh, in coastal systems. So the nitrogen that comes in and feeds the algae, then the oysters will graze on that algae, repackage it as their biodeposits, it's the nice way to say that, <laughs> end up on the sediments. And they become okay. juicy material for microbes. So then microbes can take the nitrogen that's in their biodeposits and transform it into N2 gas. Uh, this represents a complete removal of the nitrogen that fueled the algal growth because N2 gas is the majority of our atmosphere. 78% of our atmosphere is N2. So it's pretty much inert and harmless. And that's where we want nitrogen to be. 
So oysters can facilitate this process. Okay, so just to make sure I'm understanding it correctly, the oysters are eating that algae that blooms because of too many nutrients, and then they're also processing it and their waste products then helps to remove that nitrogen and turn it into, into gas? Yeah, so the oysters are cleaning the water through filtration. So that's removing the algae and just increasing water clarity. And then because they eat the algae, they can move that the nutrients to the microbes that can use it and transform it, remove it, help remove it into into gas, convert it. So- Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so what does that look like? What does an oyster reef or oyster aquaculture look like? So, oh, geez. <laughs> uh, sometimes it looks just like rocks. Uh, if I was to pick up an oyster, and I do this often for people to, who haven't seen oysters before, they look like rocks. I mean, they're mm-hmm. shells. They're two sides of shells together. and um, Oyster reefs grow in clumps of oysters together. So little baby oysters float around in the water and they're about the size of your fingernail, uh, like pinky fingernail. And then there's different chemical cues or uh, sound cues that will get the little baby oysters to settle on other oysters. And then they stick to them like glue and then they'll start to grow and grow and grow. So you can you end up with an oyster reef that's a combination of a bunch of different individual oysters all cemented together. And they can vary in scale and size. Some can be like little tiny patches, uh, you know, like a quarter meter by a quarter meter. Uh, and some can be really, really vast and cover multiple meters of shoreline. In Florida, do we have a lot of oyster reefs, um, or are they, and they are they the big ones or the small ones? Is it a major part of our coastal environment? So I live in South Florida, where we do not have oysters, <laughs> which is so unfortunate. We used to, uh, but we have changed the water flow and chemistry so much by management. So basically, in South Florida, in the Everglades area. They used to have this brackish um, zone where you could have that middle salinity, not too salty, not too fresh, which is what the oysters need. But we've changed our water management so much that we now don't have that zone anymore. And it's either completely salty or completely fresh. So that coupled with the really, really high temperatures that we see in South Florida are not, don't make oysters happy. So we don't have oysters here anymore. We do have oysters on the West Coast, in the, on the Gulf Coast of Florida, uh, and then up probably like Indian River Lagoon and North, we're starting to see, we start to see oysters again. The population in globally has declined to, they're considered functionally extinct because there's less than 1% of what there was in terms of oyster population about a century ago. Uh, And there is growing desire and interest, including here in Florida, to restore oysters, to recover the population, to provide us tasty treats because, I mean, let's face it, that's a good market. People want to eat oysters. Uh, And then they also do a lot of great things for our environment. So there, you'll see oyster reef restoration projects in in the, in, in the Indian River Lagoon, uh, up in, over in Charlotte Harbor, 
Naples area, uh, definitely in the panhandle too. Does um does a man-made oyster aquaculture reef look a lot like a natural oyster reef or are there differences there? So aquaculture happens in a variety of different ways. They do aquaculture where they'll spat on shell, it's called, where spat is baby oysters. And they'll put the baby oysters onto shell and then put them in in the environment, much like you would do for a reef restoration. So those oysters don't make good oysters for the half shell market. So they're good Mm. for canning. I don't know, because it's hard to get a perfect looking oyster then to sell at at like a white uh, tablecloth dinner service if you're growing clumped together. So I don't know how much of on bottom aquaculture like that we have in Florida. Uh, And oyster aquaculture is growing in Florida. We've mostly focused on clams until fairly recently. Uh, a lot of the oyster products that we see in Florida have been from wild harvest. So people have been going out and uh, just collecting the oysters from natural reefs. And that's been part of the problem and why we're having this decline in the population. But as aquaculture, it's typically done in cages. So it's an individual oyster shell, like you know what you would th- see of at a se- seafood restaurant. And then they are just grown up, (laughs) uh, moving from different size meshes as the oysters grow and in different places in the environment. There's a variety of different ways to culture them in the water. This is uh, the opposite of like that on bottom aquaculture. And they can hang, they can be on the surface water. They can hang and be mixed and tumbled around by waves. So a little bit deeper. And then they can also be just off the bottom in these cages. So you obviously know a lot about the aquaculture of oysters and you know other species like clams. Is it ever challenging for you like at oyster bars or at seafood restaurants since you know so much? <laughs> if you ask my boyfriend, he will tell you that we should never go to an oyster bar together. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I... I'm always curious to know where the oysters have come from. So I know a lot of growers from Virginia to North Carolina and down into Florida. And if I can figure out whose farm they're from, it like makes me really happy. <laughs> uh, but you you should always ask anyway, because the oyster industry is really heavily regulated. Uh, and you want to make sure that you're eating fresh seafood. But there's a term called miroir. It's like terroir for terroir for wine. Oh, cool. Uh, you know how grapes for wine are grown, get a flavor from where they're grown, the soils. Uh, miroir is the same for oysters because oysters are filter feeding. So they're constantly, uh, the conditions in the environment are affecting the way that the oyster will taste. So oysters from, let's say, Chesapeake Bay will taste different than Gulf Coast oysters. And oysters from the West Coast of the United States will taste completely different. The West Coast oysters are, the water's colder, it's crisper. Uh, Gulf Coast oysters tend to be a little bit more metallic and uh, sedimenty, which I really like. And then some of the Chesapeake Bay oysters can be really, really salty. So you think your favorite are the Gulf Coast oysters? Or is it hard to pick a favorite oyster? It's hard to pick a favorite oyster. Uh, I really like Gulf Coast oysters when they are roasted. And I really like, 
I really like, uh, I really like really, really salty oysters. So more of like the Maryland Chesapeake Bay area. So what advice would you give to our listeners um, who are going out for oysters? Is there anything that they should be particularly aware of or make sure to ask about? So the one, when you go to an oyster restaurant and you'll see all these different names, there's like Old Salts or uh, Rappahannox. And a lot of the time, it's the same species of oyster. It's all Chrysostra virginica. It's just based on where they're growing and who the farmer is that gets to name it. So you can tell a lot about how the oyster would taste based on the the name. So James River oysters are from Virginia. They're grown in the James River. They're probably, which is right outside Richmond, so they'll probably be a little fresher, uh, like saltwater fresh, (laughs) than oysters that are old salts, which are grown in the eastern shore of Maryland. So you can tell a lot just about how the oyster would taste based on that name. But I think that it's really important not to eat wild harvest oysters because you want to protect that wild population. So oysters that have names that are very location specific are more likely to be from wild harvest than from aquaculture. And we want to eat aquaculture oysters because they are putting oysters into the environment to do these great things that they do, like filter the water remove nitrogen, but they do it, aquaculture does it in a way that's in an economic framework that provides jobs and can support coastal communities too, and takes the pressure off that wild population. So we can let the native population of oysters grow and still get the tasty treats that we enjoy. That's amazing. Uh, And right now I want to go out for some aquaculture oysters. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, then thank you so much for joining me today on Streaming Science. It was really, really nice to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you so much to Dr. Smith for joining us today on H2NO. I hope you all enjoyed hearing about oysters and all the good things they bring not only to our plates, but also to the environment. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Smith's work, please see our show notes for a link to her lab's website. And be sure to subscribe in SoundCloud so you don't miss a moment of H2NO. This has been Emily. Thanks for listening.